So during Lent, we're going to be following the lectionary, which is kind of just a list of scripture passages that churches around the world uh, share and, and, and preachers around the world will be preaching from. Um, we shuffled things up a little bit with uh, Michelle's uh, mother being sick this week. She was going to be preaching today, so I'm preaching uh, instead of her, taking a different text. She'll come back next Sunday and preach her original text. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, and verses 17 through 18. Would you stand, please? As we read together uh, the scripture, there's going to be a few words in here that may not look familiar to you, but just do what preachers do and fake it like you know how to pronounce it, and you'll be fine. Let's read this together. After this. I'll read the last of it. Verses 17 and 18. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. This is the word of God. And you can be seated. This is, for some of us, maybe a familiar passage. For others of us, it seems an incredibly strange and odd uh, passage. Uh, what I want to do is to walk through it uh, kind of chunk by chunk to give us a sense of what's going on here and then end with just two uh, relatively straightforward implications of what we find uh, in this Old Testament text. Uh, the, the, the passage begins after this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. After this, now this is uh, uh, kind of a, a literary device here pointing us backwards to what had just happened. And it may be that it's including God's first interaction with Abram that has taken place over the past few chapters, but it seems likely that it's also including the whole of Genesis. We're only in Genesis chapter 15. Now, a lot happens in those 15 chapters, but we're right at the beginning of the Bible, right? Like, you look at your Bible, there's a whole lot that happens after Genesis 15, right? 
You got a lot of pages left in there. And so after this, it's kind of like, it's kind of looking back, what's happened? Creation in, in chapters 1 and 2, the fall of humanity in chapter 3, Cain and Abel's uh, disagreement and murder in chapter 4, things going from bad to worse in chapter 5, Noah and God's covenant to Noah in chapter 6 through 10, the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, God's call of Abraham in chapter 12, Abraham and Lot in, in chapters 13 and 14, and now again in chapter 15, God comes to Abram. The point being that whatever we learn about God in this passage today is something that has been true about God since the beginning. We're going to see some things about God, some very important things about God that some might say, well, that's, God did that later after, after humanity messed up, after we sinned, God had to do this. No, what we're going to see is that what we find in God today, what's exhibited to us about God in this passage today, was true about God from the very beginning. This is who God is what God is like. Abram asks a question. God comes to, I don't know, can we keep that, those first few verses up there? God comes to Abram and kind of makes this promise to him. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be your shield, your very great reward. And Abram's response seems like a non sequitur. It doesn't really make sense. What can you give me since I remain childless? How does that fit? Well, well Abram is referring to the first time that God came to him a couple chapters earlier. Chapter 12, God had come to Abram and made him a promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation. So there was a promise already made to Abram that Abram and Sarah would have children who would become a great nation. But Abram and Sarah, they're old, they're childless, they're barren. And so what seems like a non sequitur actually kind of makes sense. Abram is going back to God's original promise and saying, well, how is this going to happen? You say you're going to be my shield, that you're going to provide for me, but we're childless. How is this actually going to take place? In verses 4 and 6, we read God's response. This man will not be your heir, that is, Abram's servant, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So God responds to Abram's uh, understandable question, how, how will your promise be kept? He, he, he responds by reiterating it. He, he kind of gives him the promise again. And he makes it clear that the promise will be kept through not a servant, but through a biological heir, through a son born to him and to his wife. And the text says that Abram believed God and that God credited it to him credited his belief as, what does the text say? As righteousness. This is a huge theme throughout not just Genesis, but the whole Bible. Paul will cite Abram's belief in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, as evidence that righteousness, that is, being right before God, has always been accomplished through our faith in God. Being right before God, being righteous, has always been a gift from God and never something that we could come up with on our own. We could never make ourselves righteous. Abram's righteousness comes through his belief, his faith in his God. God gives him, credits him righteousness. There's a ton we could say about this verse. We could spend weeks just on this verse here, but we won't. Let's press on. In verses 7 and 8, God continues, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. 
But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So what happens? God adds to his original promise. What was the original promise back in chapter 12 and again in chapter 15? I will make you into a great nation. You will, you will have a family. You will become a family. That was the promise. Now God adds to the promise by saying not only that, not only will I make you into a great nation, but you will come to possess the land that you stand on. Abram is like a squatter right now. He's, in, he's camping on somebody else's land. It's not his own. God says not only will you become a great nation, this land will be your land. And Abram again asks the how question. How's this going to happen? Now, when I first look at this, it strikes me a little bit, I don't know what, odd, arrogant, presumptuous something, right? Like, if you were having a conversation with God, like most of us wouldn't ask a how question even once, right? But twice, it's like, come on, like, it's God you're talking to here, right? He already, he already said it's going to happen, so come on. Why is he asking God again how this can happen? Well, think about this for a minute. Think about what God has promised him. God's promised Abram and his wife Sarah that they will be made into a great nation. That this will come about through the birth of a son. They'd never been able to have a child. They were well past their childbearing years. They were barren, and yet the promise was for a, a family who would be a nation born to them by a son. Not only this, but, but they will be a nation who will come to possess the land he's currently standing on, but has no real sense of how he would ever come to possess it. And then, just like the kicker, the whole purpose of this is so that this great nation would bless the world is, is, pretty, is big, right? Like, it's not like God's, like, promising, I'm going to give you a nice day tomorrow. Right? I'm going to help you pass that test. Not even, I'm going to, you know, you'll, you can pay your rent. Like, the promise here is huge. And so maybe we can cut Abraham a little bit of slack for asking, how is this possible? Not once, but twice promise that God has just told him is beyond his comprehension. Let, let me say this. If you've never been in Abraham's position of having to ask God, how is this possible? Then it may be that you've not fully grasped all that God has promised you. Does that make sense? If you've never felt yourself compelled to ask God, how could this be? How can this be accomplished? Then could it be that you've never fully grasped all that God has promised you? Because my hunch is that when we, like Abram, come to see all that God has promised us, a natural response is, that's impossible. How could that possibly be? That's way too good to be true. That's too amazing. That's too impossible. I can't even imagine. I can't even picture how that would happen. How could this be? Some of you maybe can just spend a little time considering all that God has promised. Allow yourself to be overwhelmed 
be surprised, to be incredulous even, of all that God has promised. Because what God promises you and me is something that only God can accomplish. And so it will be incomprehensible to us initially. You will say, how? How can this happen? Are you with me? Verses 9 and 11, God again responding to Abram's question. says, bring me a heifer. It's a cow, right? Heifer, cow? It's a cow? Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. This is strange, right? Let's not be all churchy and be like, oh, yeah, that's normal. You've never done that before. You've never seen that happen before, I'm guessing. That's just strange, right? Here's what's really interesting to me about this. All God tells Abraham is go get the animals. He doesn't give many other instructions, right? And Abraham just like starts cutting them up. He's like, yep, been here, done that. I know, how, I know this drill. Because see, for him, it was normal. All he has to hear is go get these animals. He's like, oh, I, I know what we're doing. I know what we're doing. I know what we're doing. We are cutting a covenant was the language that they would have used. See, in in this day, people entered into covenantal relationships with each other, different landowners or or, kind of clans, people over different tribes. They would enter into these relationships with each other, and they would cut a covenant. They would take these animals. They would split them in two. It would be messy and bloody. And then they would each walk through the path that these animals made signifying that if either of us break this covenant, this is what will happen to us. Right? So it's, it's pretty uh, visceral, yes? This is, again, like, this is tough for us. Like, not only do we not cut up animals and walk through them anymore, we don't even really enter into these sorts of relationships. Right? Like, most of the, the contracts that we enter into are with... <laughs> These sort of nameless, faceless corporations, right? Like when, when my wife and I purchased our, our condominium, we're, we're, we're entering into a contract. But I really don't know who's on the other end of that contract. I think it could be really hard to find, like, who do I actually owe all this money to? You understand what I'm saying? Well, I think that the, the, the closest that we still come in our culture is marriage, actually. The closest we come to this sort of face-to-face Very intimate, very vulnerable act of entering into this covenant relationship, I think is marriage. I've not been able to think of another one. If you think of one, come tell me afterwards. And then this place of marriage, these two people go through these kind of rites and these rituals. We don't do these things just because that's what you're supposed to do when you get married. It's, It's symbolizing something very important that these two people are covenanting to one another, are entering into this covenant relationship that is not meant to ever come apart. This is what is happening here. This is a mutually binding agreement. Maybe Abraham had done this before with somebody else. So he knows the drill. He knows how it works. 
now pay attention to what happens next. And I don't, I don't think we have these verses, but if you have your Bible, look at verses 17 and 18. When the sun had set, so again, the, image, the, the, the scene here, the animals have been cut up, they've been laid apart, nothing's happened yet. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. This is how you can know, Abram. We entered into this covenant together. To your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. This is where things get really, really interesting. I've got to pay attention here a little bit. In, in, the, in the text, God is symbolized by smoke and fire. That's not too surprising. God is often symbolized by this. The, 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 the Hebrew children are led out of Egypt by a God who appears as smoke at certain times and as fire as other times. And as we would expect, God passes through. The animals are laid apart, and God passes through, making his part of the covenant. Do you see Abram passing through? He doesn't. The only one who passes through these animals, the only one who walks through this path of blood, is God. Abram is a bystander. He should have gone through, but he didn't. The text only records God going through. This is not an omission that the Bible makes. This is an incredibly important point. This is a covenant that breaks every assumption about how covenants are supposed to work. In this case, there is only one party on the hook for the fulfillment of the covenant, and it's not Abram. You could say that there is foreshadowing here. It is not, it will not be Abraham whose blood will be shed. It will be God's. You see? This is why it's so important, I think, for us to see this. Because from the very beginning of the Scriptures, the Bible reveals a God who invites us into covenant relationship. It's a God who's not content for us to be over there. We can't get close to him because of our own sinfulness, and he'll save us from a distance. This is a God who wants to be near his people wants to enter into covenant relationship. But, but there are really only three possibilities for this then. First is that you and I, unlike Abram, are actually strong enough, good enough, religious enough to walk that path and not break the covenant, to live perfect lives. A second option is that we walk that path and fail finding, not surprisingly probably, that we aren't good enough, strong enough, holy enough to uphold that covenant and, of course, suffer the consequences of that covenant. There's a third option, and it's an option that we see here in our text. It's, it's that for God to enter into covenant relationship with us, God takes on to himself both parties' responsibilities. God walks the covenant path by God's self. God makes it clear that it will be his responsibility and his alone to hold together 
this covenant relationship. Are you with me? This is the option we see in the text. Beginning with Abraham and then accomplished definitively in Christ, it has always been the grace of God that holds us in covenant relationship with our Creator. And so Jesus, at the last meal with his disciples, sits down, breaks the bread, and says, this is going to be my body broken for you. And then he says this in Luke 22, this cup, holding up that cup of wine that he'll pass to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Whose blood is spilled? It's the Son of God's. God who takes on to God's self the responsibility for upholding the the covenant, bearing the consequences when the covenant is broken, shedding his blood that we would remain and know this covenant relationship with our God. The author of Hebrews in chapter 9 of Hebrews says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus bears in his broken, bloodied body the consequences for our broken covenant. And Jesus makes possible an eternal, restored, covenantal relationship with our God in the shedding of his blood. This is a covenant of grace. Grace because it is God who does it all. Amen? One of the world's great tragedies, and I really do mean world's great tragedies, is that the church, we who are Christians, have often not been known for this sort of grace. For this sort of jaw-dropping, extravagant grace. We have too often forgotten the beautiful covenant that has claimed our lives. We somehow think that we we actually have been good enough, strong enough, spiritual enough, holy enough, religious enough. Maybe in our arrogance we think that, that unlike Abraham, we actually could have walked between those broken and bloodied animals, upheld our end of the bargain. But we know this is ridiculous. This is incredibly far from the truth. And at our best moments, church, we know this. At our best moments, we cling to this grace of God. At our best moments, we revel, we celebrate the extravagant, absurd grace that would hold us to God despite ourselves. And let me say one other thing about the way that this idea of grace gets confused. Much of the world judges the church, and sometimes rightly so, for being without grace. One of the things that people think of when they hear Christians is what? Judgmental. Have you heard that? The same world that would see us this way sees itself very often as much more gracious than the church. And and I want to say this carefully with no arrogance, but here's, here's what I think is true. What passes for grace in our world 
in our neighborhoods, in our city, is in fact little more than tolerance. And tolerance, as fundamentally necessary as it is for any society, is a long ways from grace. Tolerance gives space to the other to be the other without actually having to love, to accept, or to embrace him or her. Tolerance allows for you to be you until you begin interfering with me. And again, tolerance is necessary and an admirable trait. I would not want to live in this city if there was not tolerance. But as a follower of the God who walked the bloody path in my place, I need to bear witness that it is He who is the source of all that is grace. And as one who is submitted to the crucified Christ, I cannot help but point to Him as the definition of grace, never confusing it for something as tepid as tolerance. So there's a tension, church. There's a tension between the grace that undergirds every single aspect of our lives as Christians and the world in which we live. A world whose best attempt at grace doesn't quite get there. It's not surprising that we find this tension throughout the Bible. We saw this when we studied Philippians last fall. I think we have this text, Carla, Philippians chapter 3. Paul's writing to the early church, and he says, Join together, in verse 17, and following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Paul calls us here to stand firm. To stand firm in the covenant of grace, knowing that this way of living in Christ is fundamentally at odds with a world that privileges the strong, that privileges the powerful, the victorious, the manipulative, the conniving, and the harsh. The way of grace will find itself at odds with this way the world knows how to live. The covenant of grace that you and I know in Jesus is out of place in a city like ours, a city of stop and frisk, a city where the quality of your education is determined by your zip code. In this sort of world, the covenant of grace makes no sense. God's covenant of grace will be written off and mocked in a world full of truisms like survival of the fittest. And only the strong survive and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I think this, this tension uh, was, was captured really well in a film I saw a few years ago uh, by Terrence Malick, The Tree of Life. Anybody see that movie? There's like 10 people in the country who saw that movie, I think. In that film, we hear the voice of Mrs. O'Brien. She kind of narrates the movie. She's the mother in the film, played by 
Jessica Chastain. And she describes the difference between what she calls the way of grace and the way of nature. This is what she says. The nuns taught us there were two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You had to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself, accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked, accepts insults and injury. Nature only wants to please itself, get others to please it too, likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it and love is smiling through all things. The way of grace, as described by the character of Mrs. O'Brien, is able to accept the slights, the insults, and the injuries that are inflicted by the way of nature. Why? Because those whose starting point is grace do not have to protect themselves. Those whose starting point is grace, do not have to protect themselves, do not have to defend themselves. Why? Because their worth, their value, their identity has already been secured forever. Those of us who have known the grace of God exist in a covenant relationship with our God that cannot be broken exist in a covenant relationship with God where our very selves are forever affirmed by our God. You are worth it. Valued and loved by God. Those whose starting point in grace is grace know this and know that this can never be taken from them. And so when we experience opposition, when we experience frustration, when we experience the nitpicking of relationships, it's not our identity that is on the line. It is not your worth. It is not your value that is on the line that has already been spoken for. Amen? I, I think this gets a little bit at the, the sermon last week where we heard Jesus say to us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. This is the tension we experience in this life as people of grace who live in a world that knows very little of grace. This is the way of discipleship. The entry point is grace. We are sustained by grace. We will be brought home by grace. But along the way, we pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus through a world that knows very little of grace. So here's, here's the conclusion. Worship team, you guys want to come up? Two things. The thousand implications of this text, you've already made many of them in your own mind. Let me suggest two. Two things. First, we are the place where God's covenant grace is expressed and experienced. Not a theoretical we. We. Flesh and blood. In this room, as the people of God, we are the place where God's covenant grace is seen, expressed, and experienced. This is really important. Grace is not a concept. 
Grace is not a theological idea to master. Grace is the fundamental reality that makes our lives and this community possible. It's the only reason we exist is because of the grace of God. Amen? So this must be the place where that grace is experienced and expressed. There there, there are people who come, some of you are among them, who experience no grace throughout your week. Everything about your life, the people you live with, the people you work with, the place where you live, there is no grace. Everybody around you is oriented towards this way of nature. This must be at least the one place where every week we know and taste and experience the grace of our God. Amen? This must be the place where people are not tolerated, but loved. People, not ideal people, not the people you like to like, all people. That person you're picturing in your head right now. You're like, that person? Yes, that person. That person. Not tolerated. Not held at a distance. Loved. It's an expression of the grace of God. This must be the place where you and I refuse to be anything other than what we are in that moment. This has to be the place where we share the ugly stuff with each other. And you know why we can do that? Because our identities aren't on the line. Do you see the connection? See, when my identity is secured, when I have heard and seen at the cross of Jesus that I am worth it, that I am valued, that I am a child of God, then I can own up to my sin. I can tell you, Uh, that I've hurt you and asked for your forgiveness. I can tell you when I had a horrible week. I can tell you when I went back to that thing I said I'd never go back to. Why? Because my identity is not on the line. Somebody say amen. That's good news, right? Such great news. Our identities are secure. It also means that we can share the good stuff and not have to be worried that somebody's jealous. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. There are people in your life who you don't share the good stuff with because you know as soon as you do, A, they're going to start feeling jealous, or B, they're going to try to one-up you. Oh, let me tell you about the time when such and such, right? Not here. Not here. I can can share with you when something wonderful has happened in my life because I know that your identity is secure in Christ. That the joy that I'm experiencing in the moment has no bearing on who you fundamentally are. So you can mourn with me and you can rejoice with me. Where else can that happen? Grace is not a concept. It is a reality that undergirds everything that we do. This is one of the reasons we're inviting you to pray during our closing worship during Lent every week. This would be the place where when you need to come up and pray, you come up and pray. It doesn't matter if you knock somebody's knee when you're walking by. 
It doesn't matter who's with you, that this is a safe place to come up, to be at the cross, to ask somebody to pray for you, where you can share your joys and you can share your pain. Why? Because your identity is not questioned. It's a safe place. First implication. Here's the second implication. The first one is for us. The second one is for you. God has kept his promise to you. God has kept his promise to you. God has kept all of his promises to you. The promise to raise you from death to life. The promise to give you a hope and a future. The promise of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because of the Holy Spirit in your life. God has kept every one of his promises. The promise of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. The promise to bring you from darkness into light. The promise to accomplish God's purposes through you. Think about that. God's promise to accomplish God's purposes through your life. The promise to replace anxiety with the peace that passes understanding. The promise to be presented to our Father God without blemish and free from accusation. The promise of reward for all who suffer for the sake of the gospel. Promise of a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. By the way, I'm not making these up. I'm just quoting the Bible to you. The promise to rescue us from every evil attack. The promise that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The promise that when we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, that devil will flee from us. The promise that the Lord is able to keep you from falling. The promise that the Lord is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Is that good news? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I love this, for no matter how many promises God has made, because that was like 2% of God's promises. For For no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. What? They are all yes, not maybe. Not, oh, let let me think about it. Not, oh, I totally forgot about that promise. Oh, man, I'm so glad you reminded me about that. They are all yes, period, in Jesus. As though through him the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. This must be the place, church, where people experience and express the covenant grace of our God. God has kept every promise to you because of his covenant grace. This is what is accomplished on the cross. Jesus' blood spilt so that this covenant could never be broken despite ourselves. So I invite you to stand. Kelly's going to lead us in worship. 
I'm going to pray for you, and then I just want to give you permission to respond to the Holy Spirit's presence. To stand, to sit, to kneel, to come forward to the cross, to find somebody and ask them to pray for you. Church, allow this now to be the place where we know and taste and see and sing and experience and grapple with the grace of our God. Let's pray. Sometimes, Lord, it seems that the good news is too good. Like Abraham, we say, how, how, how can this possibly be? Circumstances of our lives sometimes blind us to the beauty of this grace. In this moment, God, I'd ask that you would allow us to to see clearly, to know deeply, deeply this grace. Lord, I'd ask that you would power of your spirit invite us to respond to this grace that it would not simply be a concept that we think we need to master an idea that we need to try to understand but that this would become the fundamental reality of our lives that this is the ground we stand on that this is the air that we breathe that this is what orients us every day that this is the lens through which we look at everybody around us That this is how we understand our place before our God. Not as those who have to try to make it through this bloodied path, but as those whose God has already walked the path for us. Let this, let this, let this be our reality. In Jesus' name we pray.